As I said earlier, uh, my name is Valina, and I'm the outreach minister here at Windsor Road Christian Church. And over the past few weeks, our senior uh, pastor, Randy, has been leading us through the book of Acts. And so today we're going to continue on with that journey with his sermon entitled Grace and Race. And we're going to be looking at two different ethnic groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. But um, before Randy comes up and blesses us with his message, um, he asked me to share a little bit about how this multi-ethnic journey as a church family has impacted me. I can do that. Thank you. Whoever said that. <laughs> so on my last visit um, with my brothers and sisters in Haiti, um, I had the most precious time with our Savior. See, I don't know how many of you guys have gone on the trip to Haiti with us, but we fly into Port-au-Prince and then we drive like six to eight hours up into the mountains. And so you are in the wilderness. Okay. It's, it's beautiful wilderness but you're still in the wilderness. So I wanted to just paint this picture with you. So it was me in the wilderness with Jesus, right? So that's beautiful. Me, Jesus, in the wilderness. So um, um, this is what I needed in order for me to be able to, to not only hear him, but to just see him and understand a word from him with crystal clarity, okay? So during this time, it was revealed to me that I had some real nasty confusion bottled up inside of me, right? I mentioned that our church is on a multi-ethnic, multicultural journey. And to be quite honest with each of you, I wasn't completely on board in the beginning. I just wasn't comfortable with that. I had frustration and irritation built up with my Caucasian brothers and sisters, and it began to show itself. While in Haiti, every single thing that was said about what they considered to be Haitian culture or anything else for that matter, in my response, I gave an over-exaggerated sigh or I gave them the side eye with like a slight neck roll, you know, like, <laughs> like one of them things, right? But I remember while I was there, I was crying out to the Lord just for some type of explanation of why I felt this way. Why did I want to give them the side eye every chance I got? Why was I so irritated with, the, with the, the joy and the excitement of my brothers and sisters about this movement? Why was I so uncomfortable? Okay. I remember walking down the road in Haiti. I was leaving Pastor Sin's house and I was walking to the church. I remember walking and I just felt like a sense of despair and loneliness. And it was a beautiful day. Like the sun was shining, the breeze was blowing, but my eyes were filled with tears. And I just remember asking the Lord, why am I here? Not in Haiti specifically, but in this story, in this role, right? Why am I here? What is my purpose? I, turned, I returned home a few days later, and I remember sharing all of these feelings with my husband, um, talking to him about the heartaches that I had, the irritations that I had, telling him how I have been like begging the Lord to just give me some type of clarity as to why I'm feeling this way and to show me how to walk with grace and love while standing firm in his truth during a time like this. I remember looking at Cam, that's my husband, and saying, honey, it's like I'm too black for white church and too white for black church. And I don't know where I fit in. Just paint, just paint in the picture like walking into a junior high lunchroom with nowhere to sit. And you're just standing there like, all right, well, what do I do now? See, for many years of my life, I was told by my African-American community that I talked, 
walked and dressed like white people. I was called a white girl. I was called a sellout. I was asked multiple times by multiple people, why do you talk like that? Why do you sound white? It was painful and uncomfortable, yes, but I took it because it was far better than some of the alternative names that I could have been called. So while being pushed away from a community that I longed to be a part of, I was accepted with open arms into one that I was not totally familiar with. From being the only girl of color for many years in my brownie troops to America, to being the only chocolate girl on my high school dance and cheer teams for a few years, I was surrounded and simultaneously I was immersed into a foreign culture while being engulfed by their love. And during this whole time of my life, it was communicated to me that my color didn't matter. I can recall being told several times, Valina, when we look at you, we don't see color. We just see, we just see Valina. <laughs> I was brainwashed into believing that denying of my color and denying the color of others that that was, that was the way to go. That buffering out color at the time, I thought was the way to achieve real unity. So after many years of not recognizing the importance of knowing my history, knowing my people, and knowing my culture, I had unknowingly created this bubble for myself, right? And it was this sort of ignorance is bliss type of bubble. Because at that time, my circle of influence See, we all knew that color didn't matter, okay? We were colorblind because we knew that it was the best way for us to love one another. Seeing beyond the color of our skin was how we showed love to each other. Making our differences translucent or almost invisible, that's how we were able to love one another. So let's fast forward to 2012 we relocate back to the area, and my family does a little church shopping, and we get invited to Windsor Road Christian Church. And this was great. This was like my definition of heaven, okay? Because remember, I was used to being around Caucasian people, and I'm pretty sure that when I arrived, there was less than 5% black people here. And I was great. It was my cup of tea. I was in heaven. The teaching was wonderful. The children's uh, uh, ministry area was great. It was just the best place to be. Um, but what I didn't realize is that God was about to rock my world. He knew that I was comfortable in that space, but that's not what he wanted for me. So two years ago, God placed on the hearts of the leadership team here in WRCC that we needed to come together and not only teach the congregation, but teach ourselves three foundational truths. And those are unity, kingdom mindset, and fearless evangelism. See, there was a revelation that took place that made it crystal clear that we all collectively had actually be, been sitting pretty in our little Southwest champagne bubble. Most of us were unaffected, unaware, or simply unbothered by the trials and tribulations of our own community. I knew that as outreach minister of this church that it was my role to mobilize the church body so that the CU community would know that we were here. And I also knew that there would have to be some strategic moves made on my behalf to make sure 
that the word of Jesus was heard throughout our community. But what I did not know and realize at the time and what God had to drag me all the way to Haiti to see is that like Joseph, I too was rejected by a community that I longed to be a part of. And that like the 12 disciples, I too struggle with this whole transition of the multicultural, multi-ethnic movement. God had to isolate me from the noise of this city, of my world, for me to realize that the invitation that I got in 2012 to come here to WRCC was not accidental, that it was divine appointment. I had to realize um, that here at WRCC, with all of you, with my church family, I'm encouraged. You all have embraced me in such a way that whenever I look at you, whenever I have conversations with you, um, I'm able to see the love and the forgiveness and the compassion of Jesus Christ. I know that within this church family that I don't have to pretend, right? When I come through these doors, I can be who I am no matter where I am. I can say what I want to say, how I want to say it. I can give the side eye and the slight neck roll. And you, <laughs> and you guys are going to love me no matter what. God had to drag me all the way to the wilderness to realize that within this WRCC church family, within my church family, that I am completely free to be who he has called me to be. What I had to realize is that what I viewed as rejection from one culture and acceptance by assimilation into another culture was God's way of preparing me to be a motivating force of fluid, being able to navigate various realms of society and cultures with the appearance of ease and grace. And he did that, I believe he did that, to lead us all towards the unity that he has called us for. He wants unity of not only our church family, but our community and the world so that it can further his kingdom. Now, I know I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. This is not comfortable for me. In a million years, I would not have raised my hand with excitement and eagerness to serve in this capacity. But also what I realized while I was in the wilderness is that God didn't come to me and ask my opinion. He didn't come to me and ask me how I felt about the situation. And he's not going to ask you either. Okay. Because when God, yeah, he's not going to ask you either. Because when God speaks, he does not speak to be heard. He speaks to be obeyed. So he doesn't care what we think about it. Okay? I know that the bridge that he has created me to be, he didn't create me to be the bridge all by myself. He didn't call me to do this alone. He's calling each of us to do this. So I stand here being led by grace to do what is absolutely uncomfortable for me to do. I'm accepting my own personal assignment of refinement. I'm following through on my commitments despite my feelings. I'm giving my brothers and sisters what they need. And I'm moving forward in faith because I've come to realize by being dragged all the way to the wilderness that the kingdom is more important than my feelings. Thank you.
I'm going to pray for us before we get started. With Randy, that is. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we love you. Um, We are so thankful that through your your Holy Spirit that you created um, unity in the midst of diversity. God, we acknowledge that human diversity is an expression of the love that you have for your creation. But God, in the midst of our brokenness, we have turned diversity into a source of injustice and um, uh, oppression and alienation and wounding. And God, Lord, I just ask that you forgive us for that. God, I just pray that you empower us to recognize and to celebrate the differences that we have in each other as a gift from you. God, I pray that you will enable us to be builders of respect and understanding and of love and that we can do all of that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you. I'm just continually grateful to the Lord uh, that he allows me to work and serve him with this holy woman of God and sister in Christ. And um, we all have stories that we come into this space And God is taking us in those stories, often where we do not want to go, to produce in us what could not be produced otherwise. Um, The Lena story resonated with me, especially the part about comfortable familiarity, being in a bubble. I like bubbles. especially when the folks inside the bubbles are like me. And and by that, I mean more than ethnicity. See, truth be told, I would prefer to pastor where everyone wore a wrinkle-free button-down collar shirt. (sighs) I really would. Where everyone played golf, um, where everyone read the Wall Street Journal, where everyone read Garth or sang Garth Brooks songs, yeah, that, that, that may be later. We'll see. Um, where everyone enjoyed black velvet coffee. Um, uh, where, where everyone uh, rode their bicycles and uh, cooked meat with indirect heat on a Weber grill. And, uh, and, and where everyone's favorite football team was the Minnesota Vikings. Um, yeah. You're hurting my feelings. (laughs) See, See, I want to pastor people who are emotionally mature like me. You know, I, I, I want to lead a church with self shepherding sheep. And I want that and all of that. You've heard, because I want comfort more than character. I want happiness more than holiness. And that's my idea of suffering for Christ. Happiness more than holiness. You know, sometimes you just have to say something out loud to, to hear how silly it is. 
right? But the truth is, it, it, though it is silly, it is silly. It's nonsense. Yet at the same time, about 35 years ago, the type of homogeneity that I'm talking about was actually a strategy for church growth. Uh, in the late 70s and 80s, and I say this very carefully, church family, because my goodness, 40 years from now, someone may stand up behind this pulpit and say, can you believe what that bozo bolting house said? So I'm, I'm going to say this, I'm going to say it very carefully. But about uh, 35 years ago, I was in a graduate school, school class at the seminary uh, where I attended, um, you know, 25-ish years old, uh, and one of the texts was a text by uh, a professor named Peter Wagner called, Your Church Can Grow, Seven Vital Signs of a Healthy Church. Now, I mean, that sounds innocent enough. I mean, who doesn't want their church to grow? I'm 25. I'm young. I'm green. I'm hungry. I want to do big things for God. That's what I want. And so I'm signed up for the class, and, and I've got my pencil sharpened, and I've got my notebook ready, and I'm in learning mode. And so as we go through this book, we hear about these seven vital signs of a healthy church. And then we get to a chapter that talks about the fifth vital sign of a healthy, growing church. It's a chapter titled, To Each Its Own. Bear with me. The fifth vital sign of a healthy, growing church is that its membership is composed of basically one kind of people. Even in church... Birds of a feather flock together. And in church growth terminology, this is called the homogenous unit principle. A homogenous unit is simply a group of people who consider each other to be our kind of people. They have many areas of mutual interest. They share the same culture. They socialize, socialize freely. When they are together, they are comfortable, and they all feel at home. Of all the scientific hypotheses developed within the church growth framework, that, that just think about how that sounds. Scientific hypotheses about the church growth framework. This is the most consistently observed worldwide. Without a doubt, it is one of the most controversial of all church growth principles. You're kidding. <laughs> Why the controversy? Well, unfortunately, many Americans find the homogenous unit principle very difficult to accept. Americans, particularly those with a college education, seem to have a strong, inherent resistance to approving churches of just one kind of people. What's the matter with you college-educated Americans? <laughs> Get on board. Yet missionaries and Christian leaders from other countries accept it as almost a matter of course. Everybody else, what's the matter with you college-educated Americans? In Burundi, for example, Christian Tutsis have little problem in understanding why Hutus prefer their own kind of local church with their own leadership. Can anybody say Rwanda? 
French Christians do not seem to have difficulty with gypsies gathering together in gypsy churches. This is cutting edge in the late 70s and 80s. You need to know that. And uh, this book and the homogenous unit principle was taught um, in, all over the country and in Protestant evangelical congregations, uh, seminaries. Over 100,000 copies sold. Um, and and uh, common sense would tell me that while the majority of those who purchased this were probably white evangelicals, uh, not all of them were white. So you have Latinos, you have African Americans, you have Asians. Uh, and do you know why it, the, uh, the homogenous unit principle was taught and then accepted? Because it works. For a season. For a season. So here you have white, black, Asian, Latino, Native American pastors reading this, sincerely desiring growth. Sincerely desiring growth. While at the same time, sincere intentions can have unintended outcomes. For in an increasingly diverse, secular, and cynical culture, people will no longer find credible the gospel of God's love for all people when that gospel is preached from unnecessarily homogenous congregations. And so the homogenous unit principle has been called a bad idea that works really well. There's a better book on church health, and it's found in the New Testament book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 has been called by scholars the most important chapter in the book of Acts. And unlike the title of this particular chapter, to each his own, the point of Acts chapter 15 is, in Christ, all are his own. And Acts chapter 15 informs us about some very important questions. For instance, what is our ground before God? Well, the ground that we all stand upon as we stand before God is the ground of grace. We'll see that in a moment. And then the other question which we'll primarily consider today is, who belongs in the family of God? Who belongs in the family of God? And you'll see that as we read verses 12 through 21. And then how does that inform our conduct toward one another? So follow along with me as I read Acts 15, 12 to 21. It's on page 924 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, there's a uh, copy in the pouch in front of you. Please open it and receive it as a gift from our church family. 
Acts 15, I'm going to read 12 to 21. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, now that's Peter's Hebrew name. Simeon or Simon, Simon Peter. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and that all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is God's word. So Acts chapter 15 chronicles an important conference that took place. A conference that came about because the apostle Paul and Barnabas returned from their first missionary journey. And you can see the route of their missionary journey beginning in Antioch of ancient Syria. Antioch, this cosmopolitan, multicultural, multi-ethnic major city in the Roman Empire where God had been doing an incredible work in building the church there. Antioch in ancient Syria, and I distinguish ancient Syria from modern-day Syria because today the ancient city of Antioch is in the Turkish city of Antakya. But in this ancient city of Antioch of Syria, the gospel had built this incredibly strong church so much so that Paul and Barnabas were sent out on a missionary preaching journey. And after they had gone to several cities, they came back to the church in Antioch to report. And they were elated. Oh, brothers and sisters, they said, through Christ, God has adopted both Hebrews and non-Hebrews into his family. Oh, brothers and sisters, through Christ, I mean, we've witnessed congregations being established of multi-ethnic communities and various ethnicities. Oh, brothers and sisters, through Christ, an entire region of the country has been spiritually transformed, and that has affected their relationships. One scholar named Scott McKnight calls this God's grand social experiment. He wrote, hierarchy, status, reputation, and connections were the empire. The church, though, was not the empire. So when the Christians gathered to worship and to fellowship and to meet and to eat, the ruthless, divisive, status-shaped backbone of the empire snapped. There would be no slave or no free in the church. 
There would be no Roman, no Greek, no Egyptian, no barbarian. This was God's grand social experiment. And the Romans, from elites to the slaves, experienced church as nothing short of, and I love this phrase, a wild revolution of equality. Oh, Paul and Barnabas were just sharing, just energized them as, as, the, as the church heard this, and they were just thanking God for it. And in the midst of that celebratory joy, Luke tells us in Acts 15 that some Judaizers came from Jerusalem demanding that these Gentile converts submit to surgical circumcision according to the Hebrew scriptures, according to Moses. Circumcision was the surgical sign of God's covenant with Israel and with Israel's seed. It was a mark of identity of God's covenant with the Hebrew people. And these Judaizers came and said, you must supplement faith in Christ with circumcision. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus keeping the customs of Moses. Jesus plus. Now, what were they thinking? Well, in their minds, since Jesus was Jewish, I mean, how can you follow a Jewish Messiah without becoming Jewish? That's what they're thinking. And furthermore, with all these Gentiles coming to Christ, Jewish identity was at risk. And so the more Gentiles who come in, and keep in mind that Gentiles are anybody who's not Hebrew. So the more Gentiles who come in, the more likely Jewish culture and identity will be, maybe, could be, should be, might be, definitely will be diluted or diminished. So Jesus plus circumcision and legalism will preserve the Hebrew way. That's what they're thinking. And Paul, himself a former Pharisee, strongly disagreed. He argued that such allegiance to the law of Moses violated the sufficiency of Christ. You're saying that allegiance to Moses outranks allegiance to Jesus? No. Jesus was the one to whom Moses was pointing. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus is the king of the former covenant. You see, on the cross, Christ was cut for you. You don't need to be cut. He's been cut. By grace through faith. Yes. Yes. So we're going to Jerusalem, we're going to talk this out. And they did. And, and um, this is what's beautiful about this passage. On their way from Antioch to Jerusalem, look at Chapter 15, verse 3, it says, Being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria. 
very Gentile places. In fact, in John's gospel, we read uh, regarding Samaria, Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Paul says, I'm going through. And I'm going to talk about what God has been doing on our missionary tour to my brothers and sisters in Christ of Samaritan ethnicity. Paul's not budging. So they get to Jerusalem and they talk it out. And there was much debate. Chapter 15, verse 7. And Peter spoke, and then Paul and Barnabas shared, and then James, this is James, the brother of Jesus, and James, who uh, we believe authored the letter of James later on in the New Testament. Peter said in verse 8, I, I have seen the Holy Spirit fall upon uh, Cornelius and his very Gentile household, just like the Holy Spirit fell on us at Pentecost. Verse 8, God gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Verse 9, God made no distinction between us and them, having purified their hearts by faith. Verse 11, we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Grace is our only ground before God. Grace is why we are in the family of God. Grace is what puts us in the kingdom of God. It's grace. Jarvis Williams who teaches theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I love how he pictures grace. He said, God does not hold tryouts for his team. Coaches choose players based on performance and skill. Some make the team, others don't. But when God chooses us as his children, it's not based on our performance. It's based on Christ's performance. Faith in Christ is the determining factor. Dr. Williams says, the children of God don't have to attend tryouts to be adopted into his family. Amen. And what that also means is this. God did not seek my permission to adopt Belina into his family. And he didn't ask her permission to adopt me into his family. Neither of us were consulted about God's adoptive decisions. Rather, having adopted us, he then said to us, meet your sister. <laughs> meet your brother. Get to know one another. Protect one another. Pray for one another. Serve one another. Accept one another, welcome one another, live in harmony with one another, outdo one another in showing honor. God our Father wants what every parent wants for their children. You belong, now get along. Right? That, that's the big idea here. You belong, now get along. The grace of God makes us belong. Now the God of grace says, get along. And do you know why? Here's why. You see, there is in fact something homogenous about all of us. But it's not our skin. 
It's our sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what's homogenous about it is that we are, we are more sinful than we could ever imagine and we are more loved than we could ever hope. That's what's homogenous about all of us. For while we were sinners, Christ was crucified for us. Now, not, not, just, not just that he died for us. He was crucified. He wasn't decapitated for us. He was crucified. This is the, the, the most ignominious death imaginable. Christ did that for us. Therefore, Romans 15, 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You belong, now get along. And how do we do that? Let's let the text teach us. Verses 20 and 21. We get along by cooperating with Spirit-prompted sensitivity. Spirit-prompted sensitivity. So in verses 20 and 21, the entire leadership of, of Jerusalem concluded, look, just because Moses isn't more important than Jesus, and Peter and Paul, every, the, the core leaders of the church, are on board with this. Just because Moses isn't more important than Jesus doesn't mean Jesus wants you to throw away your Old Testament. Okay? So, so there are four instructions in verses 20 and 21. And they are a summary of Leviticus 17 and 18, which explain how Gentiles, Leviticus 17 and 18, explain how Gentiles are to live among Hebrews. Because what you need to understand is that in the ancient world, the, the Gentiles participated in such, such pagan practices that it, it would make even Midwesterners blush. And so on the one hand, the apostles told the Hebrew Christians, there's no Jesus plus, it's Jesus only. Grace is sufficient for salvation. On the other hand... The apostles also taught the Gentile Christians to be sensitive. You, know, you, you can't try out for God's team by grace through faith. Christ has put you on his team. Now let your life reflect that reality. And sexual immorality, which Genesis 2.24 defines as, as sexual intimacy outside the husband-wife relationship, that betrays the life of grace when you act out in sexually immoral ways. And the way certain foods were prepared in the pagan world with idol worship and temple worship harmed the consciences of your brothers and sisters in Christ of Hebrew ethnicity. So, so out of love, be sensitive as you live together in the Spirit. So what's happening is that both ethnicities are stepping out of their former identity and stepping into 
their identity in Christ with Christ as their, the one to whom they express primary allegiance. And so grace teaches us to make Christ our foremost identity and, and then let that identity inform how we treat one another. And yes, we can enjoy each other's secondary identities and tertiary identities as we selflessly live together. And as the world sees slaves and free and Gentiles and Greeks and Romans and Ethiopians and Judeas and Antiochians and Cyprians and Democrats and Republicans and Cubs and Cards and White Sox and Sooners and Longhorns coming together... They're saying, how is this possible? How do you do this? And we all say, well, our citizenship is in heaven. And from there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true Caesar, Lord of the nations, King of the nations. And that's not just in theory. He is in charge. And from there we await a Savior who will transform our lowly bodies into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. That's how. That's how. If you need to read another book on church growth uh, rather than Peter Wagner, uh, rather than the book of Acts, I'd rather you read uh, this book called Perfect Harmony written by uh, our own uh, Joseph Thomas, Joe Thomas from Joe and Audra and their family are a part of our church family, and Joe teaches at Urbana Theological Seminary. And Perfect Harmony, Interracial Churches in Early Holiness Pentecostalism, 1880 to 1909. Um, so the, the, the book is about a slice of history, about 20 years, where amidst the Jim Crow laws, which enforced racial segregation... There was a spirit-prompted, sanctified unity that was unmistakably present among God's people. And it's very well-researched. Uh, Joe cites uh, two important voices. Uh, one voice is uh, um, another historian named Douglas Jacobson who said, perhaps the ultimate sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and I was, expecting, I was expecting him to say, oh, tongue speaking. Oh, yeah, that's it. Listen to what he says. Perhaps the ultimate sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit was communal rather than individual. The real sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit was more love for others, the ability to care for and respect each other across lines of race, class, gender, and age that normally separated people. All classes and nationalities meet on a common ground. And then the second voice was from Laura Goings, who, along with her husband, was an evangelist and a leader in this movement. And, and just listen to what she says. I sometimes look on with amazement. Five distinct races or nationalities, three generations and some between, uh, diversities of uh, makeup, of religious training, temperament, etc. Yet God enables us to keep 
in perfect harmony. And that's the title of the book. God enables us to keep in perfect harmony without an effort to do so. Only God could do it. Hallelujah. Without an effort. I want that. And the grace of God provides that. The grace of God makes effortless what performanceism makes exhausting. And I need that reminder. I do. I do. Because I, this white pastor, I, you know, I, I sometimes hesitate to enter into a conversation about race because I don't always know how to put myself in someone's shoes. And, and I don't want to be misunderstood. And I don't want to say the wrong thing. And I don't want to be seen as racist. I don't want to offend. And I'm exhausted already. And I want it to go away. And I thought the Civil War solved this. And then I drive by a sign that says Black Lives Matter, and I think, well, all lives matter. But listen to me. The Holy Spirit of God makes Christ's church the safest, most resourceful place to be vulnerable and to have conversations about ethnicity. I mean, think about what we share. Think about our shared resources. We share the cross. We share the resurrection. We share an understanding of the image of God. We share divine insight, divine perspective. We share special revelation from God by his spirit in his written word to his church family. And out of those resources of safety and in a place of safe love, a brother and sister in Christ can lovingly say to me, Randy, I love you. Man might change the constitution of the land, but only God can change the constitution of the heart. And Randy, I love you. When you drive by and see a sign that says Black Lives Matter, and then you think to yourself, well, all lives matter, Randy, that's what's being questioned. And this needs to be a safe place where that kind of vulnerable speaking and listening Spirit-prompted sensitivity and patience can occur. I need someone who loves me enough to say, Randy, you're sounding defensive. Does not the book of Proverbs say, a fool shows his annoyance at once? But a wise man is unoffendable. You need to be unoffendable. John Perkins, a tireless advocate and 
pastor and civil rights activist once wrote, there is no institution on earth more equipped and capable of bringing transformation to the cause of reconciliation than the church. But we have some hard work to do. And it is hard work. It is hard work. So Acts chapter 15 and Galatians chapter 2 go together. Acts 15 and Galatians 2. In Galatians 2, the apostle Paul had to publicly correct the apostle Peter because he lapsed. Galatians 2.11, but when Peter came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This was Peter who saw the resurrected Christ, who received the Holy Spirit, who preached the first Sermon in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost, who witnessed the Gentile Cornelius receive the Holy Spirit just as he had. He saw all of that and still relapsed. That's how strong the tug of the evil one is. And yet it was the Spirit's grace that corrected him. The Holy Spirit through Paul loved Peter enough to say to Peter, Peter, I smell ham on your breath. And notice how Paul said it. He said, your, your, your conduct is not in line with the truth of the gospel. See? Wow. I want, you to, I want you to walk in line with the truth of the gospel. It is, a, it is the grace of God that he cares enough about our lives to pay attention and to observe and to examine and to watch our lives. It's just a grace of God that he cares enough to pay attention to us. And, and if I'm feeling fatigued, I would submit that it's because I am trying to seek solutions where they will never be found. From on high, the Holy Spirit has inspired his holy scriptures to lead Christ's holy people to walk in line with the truth of the gospel and so be energized and equipped. So therefore, grace makes me want to lean in and want to listen and want to learn. And love calls me to, to spirit-led sensitivity about what matters to you. If it matters to Valina, it needs to matter to me. If it matters to you, it needs to matter to me. Why? Because we're family, that's why. That's our primary relationship. And, and if, it, if you care about it, I need to care about it. 
I want it to be important to me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use specific phrases as I'm interacting with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And one phrase is going to be, tell me more. Tell me more. Uh, or help me understand. Help me understand. Or, okay, now what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Or, how did you come to that conclusion? How'd you come to that conclusion? And always, always, let's pray together. Let's pray together. And all of this is taking place in a context of, 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 of spirit-immersed family relationships. Do you know, when I was um, in the country of Nepal, do you know how Christians meet one another? They say to one another, Jamesy, Jamesy, the Jesus in me greets the Jesus in you. That just sets the tone, doesn't it? That's, that's how perfect harmony occurs. And that reality sets the tone for any discussion and conversation that we have about anything in addition to our conversations about grace and ethnicity. Church family, I suppose... Um, I suppose I, I just want to say um, purposefully and humbly what the Apostle Paul said. If you see Christ in my life, imitate that. Imitate that. So, so Treat Belina, treat Cam, treat John, treat Jonathan, treat Ryan, treat Erica, treat Eric, treat Michelle, treat Ibu, treat Demetria, treat Leroy, treat Angel, treat Mary, Bob, Adrian, Sierra, treat Liz, treat Kevin, treat Joy, treat Uchi, treat Chris, treat Sarah, treat Keechan, treat Juanita. Treat them how I treat them. Treat them how I treat them. Love them how I love them. Pray for them the way I pray for them. Listen to them the way I listen to them. Whatever you see in my life that looks like Christ, would you just please do that? And if you see anything in my life that needs to be corrected in these matters, it would be an act of love for you to let me know. We're trying to figure out how to honor the Lord in our relationships at this church in this context today. I'm not trying to figure out how to do this so that I can go on a book tour. <laughs> and if someone else does that, that's on them. That's fine, great. But that's not, that's not what my desire is. My desire is Acts 13, 36. After David served the purpose of God for his own generation, he fell asleep. That's, that's it. I want to serve God's purpose for the generation that I'm in, and then I want to go to sleep. <laughs> 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 
what if it were said of us? What if it were said of us? There's something about what's going on with the Christians that meet called Winter Road Christian Church. God is enabling them to keep in perfect harmony effortlessly. How is that possible? Here's how it is. Here's how it will be possible. Verse 16, God says, I will return and I will rebuild. I will, I will rebuild its ruins. You know who we are? You may be here for the first Sunday. Who, who are you all? Here's who we are. We are rebuilt ruins. That's who we are. Let that sink in. We are ruins under repair by the grace of God. To what end? Verse 17. That. That. So God is rebuilding and restoring us so that the remnant of mankind, read Champaign-Urbana community, may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So, so the times of tearing down are over. We live in an age of divine rebuilding. So let, me, let, let that encourage you. When you still feel ruined and fallen and broken down like a booth in the wilderness, the, the, the sands of the desert have shredded the fabric of your tent and you're in ruins. Let me encourage you by saying, demo day is over. Preach this to yourself. Today, God is repairing and rebuilding our lives, our lives. He does not want us to languish in disrepair. He wants to rebuild the ruins of our lives. And that we are here today means that we are not out of God's reach. So our vision may be that of a life-changing community, passionately pursuing Christ. But in truth, Christ is still pursuing us. Christ is still putting us together. Christ is still walking with us. I don't know how many told me last week, Randy, how's your walk with Jesus? It's great. I'm with Jesus. I'm walking with Jesus. And he doesn't want me to languish. And he walks with me. He sits with me as I enter a conversation with my brother and sister in Christ of the same ethnicity or another ethnicity. Christ's spirit is, is in us, with us, for us, giving us what we need so that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And there will be misunderstandings. And we will persevere and we will not quit. And yes, at times we will find ourselves at the end of our strength, but our Savior's strength never ends. And so I close with this benediction as the band makes their way up, and we're going to sing this benediction, Romans 15, 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the church said,